Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Art Podcast, Episode 8, Judith Scott. I've spent the last few weeks investigating the work and life of fibre artist Judith Scott and it's with real pleasure that I'm able to present this podcast. For those of you that know of Scott and her work, I hope to whet your appetite for further investigation into the in-depth documentation of her that now exists. For those new to Judith Scott, I'm so glad to be able to open up the doors of discovery to her compelling and inspirational story and give you a chance to be able to know more about one of the most vital and important artists of the last 30 years. As a first up disclaimer, I would like to say that similarly to the work of Adolf Wolfley and Martin Ramirez, I've not seen Judith Scott's work other than in books and online. And as Scott's work is three-dimensional, tactile and textural, I've missed out on fully experiencing the power and physical presence of it. I can imagine that being in a space with Scott's sculptures would be an altogether different way to encounter them, and judging by the way that they have been embraced by critics and audiences around the world, it is a wholly positive and moving experience. I would like to start by setting the stage with a quote from the ever-insightful New York Times art critic Roberta Smith's review of Cocoon, the 2002 Rico Maresca gallery show of Scott's work. Quote, Seen in Ms. Scott's first rather overcrowded New York show, the resulting forms are abstract yet fierce, muffled yet extremely articulate or articulated, They range from bulky and bulbous to straight and narrow, and are often wonderfully animated. Smith continues. The surfaces of Ms. Scott's pieces present the viewer with an extraordinary range of colour combinations and wrapping techniques. The yarn can be spaced closely or widely, obscuring or revealing earlier layers and colours. It can abruptly reverse direction or converge in extensively knotted areas. Sometimes it almost seems stitched, like some kind of rough embroidery or cruel work. In a sense, they are rather carefully engineered three-dimensional paintings. Countering the impression that something has been hidden is an equally strong sense of something turned inside out and the inescapable impression of a mind and a personality at work creating instances of insistent aesthetic communication. I think that there are several points within this quote that allow us to further understand the magnetic nature of Scott's work. From a purely artistic perspective, the idea of them being, quote, carefully engineered three-dimensional paintings is something that I think is pertinent in relation to the way Scott worked on her sculptures. Always seated at the same table, up close and physical as she wove and tied her works together, similar to a painter applying daubs of paint with careful consideration. Turning the object on the table to work in multiple dimensions and with multiple senses, 
sight, touch, smell, and an internal sense of intimately knowing her work. There is a scene in the documentary film Que tienes debajo del sombrero, which translates as What's Under Your Hat, which looks at the work of California's Creative Growth Art Centre and Judith Scott in particular. In the scene, Scott is working on a sculpture which features paper tubes and the physical interaction with the sculpture as she attempts to attach a tube by holding it in place with her head gives a real sense of not only a dedicated artist but also someone who felt a physical affinity with the objects she was creating. The other part of Roberta Smith's quote that really resonated was the idea of, quote, insistent aesthetic communication. As we look at Scott's biography and delve into her life experiences, it becomes clear that her sculptures and her reasons for and process of making them are insistent aesthetic communication, writ large and emphatically. Judith Scott was born on May the 1st, 1943, and passed away in the arms of her twin sister Joyce in March 2005, aged 62 years. Not unlike Adolf Wolfley and Martin Ramirez, Scott lived a life that was broken into distinct parts, but unlike Wolfley and Ramirez, it was her freedom from institutionalization that led to her embarking on her artistic career. That her life was split into different parts was a product of the times, both in regards to her 35 years in institutions beginning in the 1950s from age 7 at the Columbus State School and then at the Galapagos Developmental Centre, to the mid-1980s when her sister became her guardian and she spent the remaining years of her life as an artist at Creative Growth Art Centre. Much change occurred in the decades between these two dates, and it was the product of these changes and societal front-footing in civil rights, feminism and disability rights that formed the society that Scott emerged into in the 1980s. Her institutionalisation as a person with Down syndrome was not uncommon at the time, and it was on advice from within the medical profession and the church that it was decided by Scott's parents to commit Judith. Her removal in the middle of the night caused significant and ongoing trauma, undoubtedly for Judith but also for those left behind, including her parents and her twin sister Joyce. Joyce writes about this in her book Entwined, Sisters and Secrets in the Silent World of Artist Judith Scott. Quote, With Judy gone, I was devastated, confused and uncertain, continually praying for a miracle that would reunite us. When that miracle didn't happen, I created for myself a life full of distractions and busyness. End quote. Judith, now alone, taken away from her family and in an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar faces, spent the majority of her life in these institutions, visits from her family growing more infrequent following the premature death of her father. Scott was non-verbal and belatedly diagnosed as deaf in her thirties. Her deafness, which was caused after contracting scarlet fever as a young child, played a role in the misdiagnosis of the severity of her condition and her suitability for education and life outside an institution. 
It would also seem that from the sparse and incomplete records received by her sister, that opportunities for artistic expression during her institutionalisation were non-existent. The one note that refers to art is mentioned by Joyce in an interview with Kevin Killian, featured in the book Bound and Unbound, which accompanied the 2014-15 Brooklyn Museum exhibition. Quote, Only one entry relates to art in any way. It tells of a day on which the children were allowed to draw, and Judy wanted to, but they decided she was, quote, too retarded. So they took away her crayons. She stormed out of the room, crying, and the notes read as if this stormy, tearful exit proved that she was a bad child, when, in fact, it was a response to their being so cruel. End quote. In Entwined, Joyce explained that she never let go of the sense of loss of her twin, and how she came to the realisation that she needed to bring her sister back into the family. Quote, In time I sought solace through meditation. I attended a six-day silent retreat focused on grief and loss. On the fifth day all my business fell away. In a moment of profound insight I could see clearly that in my heart Judy and I were still together and still one. In that moment I knew with absolute certainty that Judy belonged with me, with us, her family, and that I would find a way to make this possible. I confronted the legal obstacles and became Judy's guardian. A year later she arrived in Berkeley, California, both of us coming home to each other at last. End quote. In 1987, Joyce took Judith to Creative Growth Art Centre in Oakland, California. The centre which opened in 1974, was started by Florence Ludens Katz and Elias Katz and has played a substantial role ever since in providing a space for artists with developmental disabilities to focus on professional engagement. As Tom De Maria, Director of External Relations at the Centre, says in Que Tienes Debajo del Sombrero, quote, we are not a therapy or rehabilitation centre. The model for our studio is that we have artists from the community, who are all working artists, come here as staff people and form a relationship with our artists with disabilities. So it's a true artistic model. We do not have therapists who work here and we do not see ourselves as therapists. End quote. Artists such as Dan Miller, Donald Mitchell and Dwight McIntosh are all working at or alumni of Creative Growth. At first, Scott produced very little art, a few paintings and drawings on paper, but these colourful drawings, often tightly bound loops and scribbles, I believe, foreshadow her later work in so much as they feel like a weaving together of drawn threads on a page. They seem to me as if the impetus was there but that the artist just needed the right medium. And in late 1987, fibre artist Sylvia Seventy introduced Judith to her medium. Seventy introduced Creative Growth's artists to different textile-based processes, which included weaving and embroidery. New materials were brought into the centre, such as spools of wool and yarn and swatches of fabric, and after some initial hesitation about participating, 
1988, Scott created what is regarded as her first sculptural work, which was, as described by Matthew Higgs in Bound and Unbound, quote, a fetish-like object, a precariously assembled bundle of wooden sticks, bound by twine and yarn and subsequently wrapped in fabric, which Scott painted blue, around which a further accretion of sticks and scavenged wooden objects was attached with nails and additional twine. End quote. Interestingly, this would be the only time that Scott would add paint to one of her sculptures. Creative growth is open for the artists five days a week, and Scott would spend the next 18 years there creating in her chosen medium, producing pieces ranging in size from her smaller first work up to enormous sculptures some several feet in length. It would be a mistake to regard Judith Scott's work as simply wrapping found objects in wool, yarn or fabric, as the intricacies of her work clearly evidence a combination of techniques. She would tie, knot, weave fabric and yarns into and around, twisting and turning, using her body to keep objects in place. As evidenced in Cartier's Debajo del Sombrero, the construction of her sculptures was a physical process, as well as a considered creative process. She would carefully tie knots, snip the ends and tuck them away. Objects that she had constructed were often incorporated into larger works, attached onto or into these works to add another dimension. Scott would work diligently at her desk all day, focused entirely on her sculpture, often eating her lunch at the desk. As she became more well-known, visitors also became more frequent and were tolerated until the time came when she would want to get back to work and she would shoo them away and continue working. In Benjamin Fraser's article for Cultural Studies Journal entitled The Work of Creating Art, he comments on Scott's artistic process. In the following quote, he references John M. McGregor's book Metamorphosis, The Fiber Art of Judith Scott. Quote, the artistic process in which Judith Scott engaged at the Creative Growth Art Center took on a greater and greater meaning for her as her work also gradually became more complex. Her work notably diverges from that traditionally done by other, quote, outsiders, in that Judith eschews representational forms in favor of, he's quoting McGregor here, seemingly abstract forms. She began by wrapping fiber, yarn, string, thread, etc. around common objects, sticks, cardboard spools, an umbrella handle, broken electric fan pieces, covering them completely and resulting in what McGregor describes as objects with, quote, a hidden inside and layers and layers beyond. The end product is almost invariably something that is, quote, soft, warm, comfortable and comforting. After spending hundreds of hours observing her at work, McGregor has charted out three periods in the evolution of her work. Early work, approximating nests and cocoons incorporating traces of the human body. A middle phase centred around poles, pole groupings, pairs and doubled figures. And a late phase, constituted by reclining figures and body head forms 
Significantly, this ongoing artistic evolution was accompanied by Judith's own growing recognition of herself as an artist. End quote. Her sister Joyce commented in an interview in Quetienes debajo del sombrero that as Scott's awareness of herself as an artist grew, her self-adornment also flourished. Quote, she started wrapping the scarves around her head and wearing special hats and things when she started getting the sense of herself as an artist, or that somehow those two things came together and it seemed that the more her art pieces grew and the more recognition she received, the more elaborate her head pieces would become, so that she sometimes would wrap, you know, three scarves and then some kind of very fancy thing on top of that. I sometimes think of it as an expression of her self-esteem and her sense of herself as an artist. End quote. Scott's work holds a wonderful sense of mystery. At one level there is the question of what has been enclosed in the cocoons of her sculptures. We know, through various means, including x-rays, that Scott found and appropriated, which, as Tom de Maria commented, is just art speak for theft, such things as a ring, Christmas tree lights, women's and men's shoes, CDs, various works by other creative growth artists, including a chair painted by Dan Miller, and even a broken shopping cart. Some of these items are completely enclosed and invisible, while others might be partially emerging from within. At another level is the more interesting but unanswerable question of why Scott was making these works. They were clearly an important and significant part of her life, and her dedication and devotion to her making process was one of committed perseverance and mindful decision-making. As Tom de Maria comments, quote, Is she making objects? Is she making art? Is she communicating? Or is she merely unravelling? all of her stories and everything that's been in her head for 40 years that she's been trying to communicate, but can't. End quote. For me, this enigma is part of both the charm and the power of Judith Scott's objects. We can never know why she made them as she did, and whether she was trying to communicate through them. It is clear, however, that she was cognizant of her sculptures existing as finished statements, as it is well documented that when she considered them complete, she would push them away from her, clap her hands together in a dusting-off motion, and begin on her next work. Once each work was done, it was done, and it was time to move on, and while she acknowledged her work when she saw it exhibited, it was not something to dwell on or idolise. Judith Scott's work has been exhibited in both solo and group shows, her solo shows include the aforementioned Bound and Unbound at the Brooklyn Museum and 2002-2009 exhibitions at the Rico Maresca Gallery in New York. Group shows, both US-based and international, include Viva Art Viva at the 57th Venice Biennale in 2017, Flying High, Women Artists of Art Brut in 2019, and the Doors of Perception at the 2019 Outsider Art Fair in New York. Her work is held in major collections, including at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the American Folk Art Museum, 
and the collection De L'Art Brut and La Sane. She has been the sole subject of several books, which I will list on the Outsider Art Podcast website. John McGregor's Metamorphosis, published in 1999, which coincided with Scott's first exhibition. Bound and Unbound, which is mentioned, accompanied the 2014-15 show of the same name. And Untwinned, Joyce Scott's deeply personal account of her twins, Judith's life. Scott has also been the subject of several documentaries, which I'll also list on the website. I'd also like to mention a recent online discussion presented by the American Folk Art Museum between Tom De Maria of Creative Growth and AFAM's senior creator, Valerie Rousseau, which is available to view on YouTube. I'll put up a link on the website. I would enthusiastically encourage you to seek out these books and docos as they provide an intriguing glimpse into the life and work of an astounding contemporary artist. And, as always, if the chance arises to view Judith Scott's work up close and personal, then get amongst it. Check out the show's website at shows.acast.com outsider-art-podcast And if you can, please review, subscribe, follow and share the Outsider Art Podcast. Next up on the Outsider Art Podcast, we will be looking at the life and work of an American master, Bill Trailer. So please join me next time on the Outsider Art Podcast. And thanks so much for listening.